Hello, welcome to another episode of the Miko Pellet Podcast. This is your host, Jamil, and thank you all for tuning in. Please remember to share, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite podcast app. This helps the podcast attract new listeners, and that in turn allows all of our excellent guests to get their messages messages out to a wider audience. So for those who didn't catch the first episode of the Rabbi Shapiro, I'd encourage you to go back a few episodes and, and definitely check that one out. Yaakov is a retired rabbi from New York and also an author of the book, The Empty Wagon, Zionism's Journey from Identity Crisis to Identity Theft. Rabbi Shapiro is well known for his insights into Judaism, Jewish history, Jewish identity, and he's perhaps best known for his outspoken stance defending the historic Orthodox Jewish position that rejects the concept of Zionism. Miko recently sat down with Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro for a part two of what is turning out to be an ongoing discussion about anti-Zionism in the context of Orthodox Judaism, the origins and history of the movement, how it plays out within Israel, how it affects anti-Semitism, and nation-state building in the name of Judaism. Miko also weaved in a lot of questions submitted by you all into this conversation just to sort of help drive things. So thank you all for submitting those questions over the course of the last couple of weeks. So you can also watch a video of this exact same conversation at Miko's YouTube page. And I've gone ahead and linked that uh, in the description below. So let's get into it. Here is part two of the conversation between Miko Pellet and Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro. Rabbi Shapiro, here we are again, uh, chatting by Zoom. It's a real pleasure to uh, chat with you again. We had always a conversation. A on your show, Miko. I'm sorry. So always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Uh, you and I had this uh, had a conversation that we put on the podcast uh, about a month or so ago, and it was a big hit. A lot of people were uh, um, a lot of people listened to it. And a lot of people sent questions. So then we thought, well, let's do another session and have a, a little Q&A. So a lot of people sent questions from all over the place, all over the world, actually. And we condensed them, filtered a few, um, made sure that we can fit everything in the time that we have. And so if your question wasn't uh, uh, used this time, uh, perhaps we'll do it another time when we, when we, have a, when we do this again. Um, but I wanted to start by uh, telling you a couple of years ago, or about a year and a half ago, when you and I met for the first time, I was just coming back after spending two days in Muncie with uh, people in the, uh, the Satmer community, in the ultra-Orthodox community up there, which was incredibly interesting for me. And I recorded people, our conversations, and I'm looking at them now, listening, listening to the conversations. Um, and I believe I told you I'm writing a book about the whole, uh, the, the, the anti-Zionist ultra-Orthodox community. That's, why I, that's how I got started with this. And almost every person I spoke to, every house I visited, they showed me this book and they said, you have to get this book because this is the, uh, the most decisive book on the issue of what is a Jew, what is Zionism, what are the differences between them and so on and so forth. And then when you and I met, you gifted me a copy. And um, of course, uh, it weighs about, I don't know, 25 kilos. A little so, over four pounds. And so 
this is the this is the 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 breadth and the width and and, and the depth of the of the book but it's a serious issue and you have put in a lot of time and a lot of thought and a ton of research um, uh, into this and I've seen your library and that's behind you right there is just part of the part of the library that you have um, you've read all the different points of view which is unique because very often when people write um, and I'm guilty of this myself uh, when we write when we research we tend to research the perspective uh, or the opinions of people that we tend to agree with more or less and you went all the way out and you have read and quoted and discussed um, this issue with people across the, the, the full spectrum and you've argued with people across the full spectrum and some of your arguments and some of your conversations uh, on the streets in New York are, are available on YouTube and are quite fascinating. Um, the title of the book is The Empty Wagon, Zionism's Journey from Identity Crisis to Identity Theft. So maybe you can start by telling us what is the empty wagon? How did you, what, what does that mean? What is the, I know there's a story behind that. Maybe you can share that with everyone. In the Orthodox world, there's a famous story between, uh, about a conversation that happened between David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, and Rabbi Avram Yishai Karelitz, uh, probably the foremost rabbinic authority of his day, who lived in the Holy Land at the time. He was there before the state of Israel was there. Yeah, he, he, had a, he had a different name though too. He also had a, he was known. Well, they referred, they referred to him as the Chazonish. In the Orthodox Jewish world, in the rabbinic world, we often refer to authors of famous books by the title of their book. So uh, Mark Twain, for example, by way of analogy, would be called uh, the Huckleberry Finn, because that's, that, that's really who he is, you know? That's how he's known. So the Chazonish wrote a lot of really great rabbinic books, and he called them Chazonish. But his real name uh, was Rabbi Avram Yishaya Karelitz, and Ben-Gurion came to him. He was a he lived in a small apartment, probably as big as this room that I'm in now. And he had like almost no furniture. Uh, he had no money. And Ben-Gurion, but, but nevertheless, he was like the leader of the Jews. Um, leader means not by position, but by authority. Jews don't really have leaders in the sense of uh, elected leaders or like a pope. Uh, the Jews have leaders more like, let's say, the medical profession or the legal profession would have leaders. It, the person with the greatest authority and most knowledge and the most honest people, hopefully, are the, are the leaders. That's who people follow. And the Rabbi Karelitz was it. Him and one other rabbi in, in um, uh, Israel, who, by the way, refused to meet Ben-Gurion when Ben-Gurion asked to meet him. Ben-Gurion actually came up to his house and they knocked on his door and he said, no, go away. He just refused Sorry, to what years, what years? What years did he live? He, he died in 1959. So this must have been in the 50s. Right. But Rabbi Karelitz did, he did meet Ben-Gurion. He said, the door is open to anybody. I meet anybody. Okay, so not that Ben-Gurion was anybody special. He was looked at as a kind of a low life by the Orthodox Jews, but 
Rabbi Karelit said, my door is open to anybody. He did remove his glasses before he met Ben-Gurion because of the uh, r biblical rule not to stare at the countenance of a wicked person. So he removed his glasses so that he wouldn't be like fully seeing Ben-Gurion's face. Now, Ben-Gurion came to Rabbi Karelitz and he tried to convince Rabbi Karelitz to, that the Jews sh should support Zionism. And it didn't work. He tried to discuss maybe there could be a compromise between Judaism and Zionism, and it didn't work. So the Ben-Gurion asked then Rabbi Karelitz, okay, so what are we going to do? We're living here in the same country together. What, what, what are we going to do? So Rabbi Karelitz reminded him or told him, he probably didn't know, he was a big ignoramus as far as Judaism is concerned, of a law in the Talmud that says that if there's a narrow road and there are two wagons um, approaching each other on that narrow road in a way that they can't both pass, one wagon has to move off to the side of the road to let the other wagon go, which one has to move off the road? And the Talmud says that if one wagon is empty and the other is full, the empty wagon has to move off the road to let the full wagon pass. And so said Rabbi Karelitz that Zionism and Judaism now are at loggerheads. Zionism is an empty wagon and Judaism is the full wagon. Zionism will have to move, move out of our way and let us proceed. And that's what the, why the book is called The Empty Wagon. It's wow. a euphemism for Zionism in the rabbinic world. Yeah. Now, the subtitle is Zionism's Journey from Identity Crisis to Identity Theft. What's the identity crisis? Right. Okay. So we have to, we, we need to understand that the one most important thing about Zionism that tells you more about it than any single fact is that Zionism is an artificially induced concept, meaning the, the nationality that they claim they belong to, the Jewish nationality, that is not an authentic, organic Jewish nationality. It's a synthetically created one. Um, their history is synthetic and artificial. It's not real. It's mythological. Even their names, their names are not real. Ben-Gurion's name wasn't Ben-Gurion. It was Green. Netanyahu's name was not Netanyahu. Here, I want to show you something. Um, you mentioned the library. I have over here. Yeah, this book was written by Netanyahu's father, okay? Ben Sion and Netanyahu. Now, Netanyahu sounds like a nice Israeli Hebrew name. Uh, on the first page of the book, it says, To the memory of my father, Rabbi Nathan Milikowski. Ben Sion Netanyahu's father, Benjamin Netanyahu's grandfather, was named Milikowski. Netanyahu is a fake name. It's an assumed name. In fact, Ben-Gurion made a rule that all members of the government need to change their names to Hebrew names. And so also, and also it, yeah, he, it was, it was uh, that rule applied to all army officers over the rank of colonel and all government officials and, and, and civil servants beyond a certain rank. My father was Iflan. There you go, Iflan. He, he became now he's Yeah. Exactly. Well, their idea was that they are giving it, they're going back to original Hebrew names as opposed to using the names of the diaspora, of the Galut, which is, which were represented a different kind of Ju Judaism. 
Yeah, except the problem is that in biblical times, there were no family names. In fact, we know, uh, according to Judaism, when a person faces God, God doesn't even know your family name. The way names used to work in the olden days was uh, your name, the son of so-and-so. Well, Ben-Gurion, so, but Ben-Gurion is a name that does have some significance. Ben-Gurion was really, it was named after the general Bargiora of the um, Masada fighters. And they weren't even fighters. Um, the, the general of the Baryonim, not, not the one, oh, there, a subset of them went to Masada. But the general of the Baryonim that caused rebellion, that made a rebellion against the, the Romans and right. caused a tremendous disaster for the Jews. But there, it has no biblical significance. The, the idea is to create, to create a fictitious identity going back to the olden. What does they have to do with the Bible? They didn't even believe in it, right? In, they wanted to create a fake identity, uh, artificial identity, artificial nationality, all of the above. Now, the identity crisis was this. Zionism started. Now, now one, one of the things that's artificial is the whole Zionist narrative. The entire Zionist narrative is a fake. The definition what? of Zionism that oh. you're going to hear. That What's the crisis? But what's the identity crisis? It sounds like they've formed a very solid identity. Right. They for, well, that was the identity theft, you see. That they, they, they stole an identity, not they formed one. The identity crisis was... The Zionism was created to solve a problem. The problem was Judaism. They did not like Judaism. They did not like Jews. They did not like being Jews. They looked at Jews as um, ugly, disgusting. Um, in fact, you know, I have my library in back of me. Check this out. Um, you'll have to excuse him. Okay. Okay, I have a book here. Okay. Written by Amnon Rubinstein, called From Herzl to Rabin. Okay, I'm sure you know Amnon Rubinstein. Yes. I know him. And his chapter one is called Zionism and the Quest for a New Jewish Identity. Yes. That's chapter one. And he explains, and this is not his thesis, this is everybody, on, everybody agrees that this is what happened, is that the, the Zionists looked at the Jews, Jabotinsky said, on a, in a eulogy at Her, on Herzl, and I quote, he says, to imagine what a true Hebrew is, the Zionists would refer to themselves as Hebrews, of course. Picture in our mind a Jid, that's a derogatory name for a Jew, and imagine his exact opposite. Quote, let's erase from that picture all the personality traits that are so typical of a Jew and insert into it all the desirable traits whose absence is so typical in him. The Jew is ugly, sickly lacks hadrasponim, we'll translate it, handsomeness, 
So we're going to endow the Hebrew with masculine beauty, stature, massive shoulders, vigorous movements, bright colors, and bright shades of color. Massive, massive shoulders. Massive shoulders, yes. How do you do that? Well, yeah, the Yid is frightened and downtrodden, so the Hebrew will be proud and independent. The Yid is disgusting to all, and the Hebrew should be charming. The Yid's... So this is the, this is the crisis. That's how they saw themselves. Now, right. Now, what happened so was they didn't want to be Jews. They didn't want to be Jews. I, Jews interject here. I want to interject here for just really quick. The way you just described, or what you just read, how they are describing the Yid, the Jew. Um, one of the first meetings I had uh, with Rabbi Feldman, uh, uh, David Feldman in, uh, in, in Muncie, I sat with him and I asked him about the, the look. Because being raised a Zionist, that's exactly what I saw. You know, you look at these Jews with their, with their ridiculous clothes and their long beards and payas, and you think, what, you know, and these thick glasses. And I said to him, the way you look is, 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 is you know, looks, looks like we, it's, it's, there's a weakness, there's a, the frailty there, there's like, you know, it's certainly not handsome, you know. And um, I did my best not to be rude, but I did want it to, to, to bring this up because it's there. I mean, in other words, this is an issue. This is how people look at, 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 at um, especially the Jews with the longer beards and the payas and so on. And uh, he looked at me straight at me and he said, you have no idea how hard we work to maintain this look with such pride. You know, this is who we are as Jews. This is our identity. This is our spirituality. It's true. I, I want to explain that. It's not a question of weakness. Uh, weakness isn't a value in and of itself, but it's not a pri but strength is not a priority. Uh, Judaism emphasizes, in fact, it insists that physical strength is not a value. It is a utility, but not a value. Um, our Talmud teaches us: Who is strong? He who conquers himself. Who is honor? He who honors others. Who is wealthy? He who is happy with what he has. And Jews never, never had uh, military heroes. Uh, if you look at the Psalms written by King David, King David who had an army and all of that, nowhere in King David's Psalms will you see him bragging about how strong he is or how he's going to go out and behead uh, his enemies. He always prays to God to protect him, and he prays to God to deliver his enemies to him. It's always to God. In fact, in one very, very famous verse in the Psalms that all Jewish children sing as a song. This is a, these are lyrics, these were made into lyrics to a song. It reads as follows. Now, let me bring it up on the computer. So the, the Christians also uh, and the Muslims also recognize the book of Psalms. Um, I will bring it up and I'll tell you exactly where it's located because I'm sorry, but I don't know the numbers by heart. The words are, It's Psalms 27, 4. One thing, King David says, one thing I ask of God, it's only that which I will request. One thing. 
that I may sit in the house of the Lord my entire days, all my life, to bask in the splendor of his, of God, and to continuously visit in God's sanctuary. That's, that is the mission statement of a Jew. The Jew's mission statement is character perfection, scholarship, religious accomplishment. That's what it always was. Now, the Zionists hated that because the Zionists admired the Cossacks and the soldiers and the strongmen. Um, Hold on, I know that you... Mm. That's okay. We, I, we, you know, that's the... the, the okay. The point so, so, no, so Jabotinsky, Jabotinsky complained about how the Jews never valued physicality and physical strength. And these guys wanted to be strong men. Right. So they said, you know what? We don't want to be Jews. We don't want to be Jews. So they tried assimilation, but it didn't work because the anti-Semites persecuted them. It started in Russia in 1881. Um, the pogroms that slaughtered a tremendous amount of Jews and left many more homeless and, and injured attacked even the secular assimilated Jews. So they saw that assimilation wasn't going to work. Right. Theodore Herzl, for example, was a completely assimilated Jew. He's, you know the old joke, what's the difference between Herzl and Jesus? Jesus celebrated Hanukkah and Herzl celebrated Christmas. Herzl had a Christmas tree, he did not circumcise his son Hans, um, he was completely, had nothing to do with being Jewish, and the anti-Semites persecuted them anyway, because then in the 1800s, there was a different type of anti-Semitism, whereas in the past, like in the days of the Spanish Inquisition, anti-Semitism was based on the fact that the Jews have, a, have in the eyes of the anti-Semites, a bad religion. We killed Jesus and all of that. Um, there started an, a racial type of anti-Semitism in the uh, 1800s, and it didn't matter if the Jews were religious or not religious, the Jews themselves were bad. Uh, that's the type of racial anti-Semitism that started in Germany and uh, culminated with Hitler and the like. And then even amongst the uh, anti religious type anti-Semites, there was a school of thought that said that the Jews are so incorrigible, they're so evil, they killed Jesus, that even if they convert, even if they convert, that still doesn't cleanse them of all their evil. So the anti-Semites actually persecuted the non-religious the non Jews as well. And there was the identity crisis. They said, we hate being Jews, but the Gentiles won't let us be Gentiles. So what are we? That was it. What are we? They keep telling us, you're Jews, you're a Jew, you're a Jew, you're a Jew. They didn't want to be a Jew. 
You know, that's interesting because actually one of the questions that we have has to do with this idea of, um, of, of recognizing Jews as, as a race, as an ethnicity, and how, 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 did that, how did that happen? How did that start? And I'll get there in a moment. In a yeah. moment, we'll be there. We'll segue into that. Yeah. So that was their identity crisis. Th their solution was that they're going to change what the concept of a Jew is. A Jew will no longer be somebody who accepts these religious values. A Jew will now be a nationality. In those days, nationalism was such a strong movement all over Europe, uh, the Balkan states, everybody were becoming nations and nationalism was, was, they said, let's take nationalism for us and we will transform, transform the Jewish people from a religious community to a nationality. And, and what that means more accurately is that we will take the identity from the Jewish people. We will take their birth certificate. We will take their identity card, so to speak. The Jew will take Jewish identity, take it from the religious Jews and take it for ourselves. And we are going to be the nation of a Jews by way of analogy. Listen to this. Let's say I wanted to convince the Christians that Christianity Christian identity is not a religion. It's a baseball player. You want to be a good Christian, be a good baseball player. So I could convince them that their religion, they should give up their religion and become baseball players, but that probably won't work. Instead, here's my strategy. I'm going to teach in the schools. I'm going to get a hold of schools. I'm going to make a movement. And in these schools, in the textbooks, I'm going to teach that the Christians were always really a baseball team. Jesus was the manager. The Gospels were all stars until they went lost. They went lost the years of dia in the diaspora and, and at the hands of priests and uh, bishops and, and religious leaders. They convinced the Christians that they're a religion, but that's not really what they were. That's a corruption of what it is. Christians are real baseball players, and, and, and everybody needs to be good Christians. So here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a Christian team. I'm going to make uniforms, pinstripe uniforms. It'll say Christians across the chest, scripts, diagonal across. I'm going to get a stadium for them to play in. I'm going to get them a... a, a place in the in, in the major leagues and i'm going to tell everybody you want to be christians here's your equipment the real good christian is a real baseball player the zionists did that and they accept instead of turning the jews into baseball players they wanted to turn them into a nationality we'll invent a language modern hebrew is a synthetic language it's not biblical hebrew they took it and bastardized the entire thing in order to create a modern Hebrew. In fact, they, they actually used the language to transform the consciousness to the Jewish people so they should think of themselves as a nationality. For example, Miko, the word kaviochel in modern Hebrew, I once mentioned this to you, it means as if, like what a joke, right? 
But the word kaviyochal all over our Talmud, and probably 99.99% of our literature is used only with regard to God. When we say God gets angry, God doesn't really get angry. So it means and in a manner of speaking. And we refer to it, uh, we apply it to God only. All over the Talmud. The Zionist said it means, ha, what a joke. You understand the, the implication. The word agada in the Talmud, in rabbinic Judaism, means moral lessons that we learn from our sages. In modern Hebrew, it means a fairy tale. The word betochen means, in, in that form, the root is one thing, but the form of the word betochen, that word is only used regarding God. It means having trust in God, faith in God. The Zionists changed it. Betochen means homeland security. Okay, they changed the language from a spiritual language into a, a nationalist language. One more, the word teku. Teku in modern Hebrew means a tie in a sporting event. Teku, uh, you know, it pains me even to, to, to talk about this. Teku all over our language, all over the Talmud, all over all rabbinic literature, until the Zionists came, teku means if we have a spiritual value or spiritual legal question that we don't know the answer to, it's called teku. It means when Elijah the prophet or the Messiah comes, we can ask him. They said, no, it means a sporting event. So you see, they changed spiritual concepts into national ones. And that was their goal. Their goal of creating the state, creating a language, creating a land, creating a culture, creating new names, was to synthesize, artificially construct a new people, which don't exist. They call themselves the Jews, and they borrowed, stole our birth certificate, our papers, our credit cards, and they say, no, that's us. You guys are leftovers. And Jabotinsky's attitude towards the Jews is still there in secular Israel today. You grew up there. You're, you're approximately my age. You're probably young. You look younger than me. But uh, you grew up in Israel, and you know the attitude of the seculars to the religious. If you want a good book on this, when you hear I recommended it, here, here's another one. I'm glad I'm sitting in back of my books. It's called Real Jews by uh, Professor Noah Ephron. Um, lives in Tel Aviv. He is a... Um, He's a professor over there. Teaches Tel Aviv University, yes. He teaches in Tel Aviv University, yeah. and he, he discusses the secular attitude towards religious Jews. And here he has a cartoon. He collected cartoons. Look at this thing over here. I'll tell you what this says. Okay? It's a cartoon from a Zionist, a regular secular Israeli uh, uh, handbill protesting the establishment of a religious daycare center in a secular neighborhood. It reads on top, the new enemies. Yeah. And it has a picture of a mother uh, walking with, I don't know, a, a couple dozen children. And it says, the caption says, We need to terminate them while they're still young. Exterminate okay? them. Exterminate them. Exterminate. We use chasel in us means to end. Like at the end of the Pesach Seder, we context, say chasel. 
the what? context, the context, the context, right. the context there is to exterminate. Lechassel is to exterminate. Right. When you talk about in Zionist thinking, when you talk about lechassel, is to is to exterminate, is to completely exterminate. But there's something. You're in California, right? Yeah. Ask Arnold Schwarzenegger what terminate means. Yes. <laughs> okay. Whatever. Exterminate them. Let me let me let me let me kind of let, let me ask you something because this is leading to some. So one of the questions here is, uh, so how, did, how come the world acknowledged this okay. uh, idea that Jews are a nation and, and, and an ethnicity when clearly, clearly okay. all the evidence points in the other direction? Because, and you and I talked about this, and I think you mentioned it in our previous uh, podcast, you've got Jews in Yemen who speak Arabic and look nothing like you or me, and we came from, uh, you know, Eastern Europe. And then you've got Jews in the Arab world who speak and, and look differently than, you know what I mean? So you've got this, you've got this whole scope of, of Jewish people who share a religion but have no other common factors. Yet the world accepted this Zionist idea. I mean, not just accepted, I mean, bought it whole. Uh, the Jews are, an, are a nation like the other nations and even perhaps uh, an ethnic group. Right, now, for this, I need one more book. Making of Modern Zionism, Shlomo Avineri. Shlomo Avineri, professor of political science at Hebrew University. That's him. It's and short. Now, let, me, let me just add one, one more thing here, uh, which is related. You even see Orthodox Jews, or at least Jews who look like Orthodox Jews, uh, Israelis who have embraced this idea and, 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 and uh, are proponents of this idea of Jewish nationalism and, and, um, and even ethnicity. Even Orthodox, even Jews who are ultra, or look at least ultra-Orthodox, who, uh, who are proponents of these, of these ideas. So it's not only been accepted by the world, but it looks like it's even been accepted by some religious Jewish authorities. And I'm talking about, and I'm not talking about these kind of modern types of, you know, Orthodox like, you know, Ivanka Trump. I'm talking about, you know, or Jews that look and live um, an ultra-Orthodox uh, way of life. Okay, the, the answer is this. As I said, the entire Zionist narrative identity uh, and people are synthesized. And so the Zionists embarked on a major propaganda campaign to spread in their schools and to the world, in the political world, the idea that the Jews are a nation. Now, anti-Semites in the olden days, the Romans, for example, looked at the Jews as some kind of ethnicity or nationality. And the reason is because they're not going to obviously accept the Jews' narrative that the reason why they're Jews is because God came to Moses on Mount Sinai and told him to follow the commandments, and that's the definition of a Jew. But for the first time in history, these, the Jewish people, or those among the Jews, meaning the Zionists, the seculars, suddenly had a voice in the international arena. Jews are, by nature, the ghettoized, and contrary to what the Zionists will tell you, um, the Jews themselves about a thousand years ago chose, they asked to be in a ghetto. There's a great secular Jewish historian named Salo Baron from Cambridge, who you can get this 
over here in the menorah treasury and um, and you open it up you'll see an article by him called uh here it is Salo baron ghetto and emancipation i highly recommend it he right over there Salo w baron ghetto and emancipation in there he explains how the jews wanted to be in a ghetto just like when they went to egypt they they wanted to be in goshen uh separate from the egyptians the jews because their mission in the world is a a, a spiritual mission I, I mentioned last time imagine shaolin monks but without the orange uniforms and we don't beat each other up um we are a a spiritual priestly people that's our, our mission yes we use technology and stuff but our values and our accomplishments are spiritual ones and for that i mean just like if you want to study for a test you you need to be secluded the jews always like to be segregated law-abiding tax-paying but segregated in order to fulfill their their mission in, in the privacy of their own communities and they never really had an interest and we still don't in being involved in politics or or, or world events uh, the way the germans used to put it the way hegel used to put it to be involved in history the jews were never interested in being involved in like history and this is one of the things the zionists hated now the zionists suddenly suddenly they had a voice in parliaments they had a voice in in the in the press they had a, a voice all over and suddenly what they did was they started claiming that they represent the jews the jewish agency went to the british during the mandatory period and and, and they said, we represent the Jewish people, but they don't. Rabbi Sonnenfeld was, was the head of the Jewish community. All we wanted to be, all we ever wanted to be was to be left alone by the Zionists. You, you want Zionists, a, a message to the Zionists is, look, you want to be whatever you want, do whatever you want, not my business. Just leave us alone. Don't claim you're the Jews. Don't claim Israel's the Jewish state. Just, just leave us our own identity and get out of our lives so suddenly you had a ben-gurion hired a guy ben and diner to create a curriculum a historical curriculum an educational curriculum to teach the jewish children from when they're little youths that the jews are a nationality that the jews their religion the jews are a, their their religion was the religion a tribal religion of the tribe that the jews are intrinsically a tribe and the same way the uh, vikings worshipped odin or the greeks worshipped zeus the jews worship the god of the bible but that's not true we are not a a people in a political sense that has a a, a religion but the zionists developed this synthetic just like they faked their names they faked the jewish history they faked all of this now in in the making of modern zionism he he points out he, he i mean he has chapters about different zionists herzl nachman sirkin jabotinsky ben gurion and he put in somebody that you may be surprised is there but i'm not he put in gretz the historian he was not technically a zionist but really he was because gretz as he points out correctly is responsible more than anybody else for the idea of the jews being perceived as a nationality he wrote a big widely accepted amongst the secular world the history of the jews which he had no competition because do you know of any 
religious Jewish history of the Jews that the secular people read. No, we stick to ourselves. They said, you know what? We have a captive audience. The religious people, they're not going to bother us. They're not capable of countering our voices. So now Gretz wrote a history of the Jews, by the way, that starts with, not Abraham, doesn't start with Isaac or Jacob. It starts with Joshua going into the Holy Land, you see. And the whole idea is that the Jews, are their, their goal is, is to get a land and a language and a culture. And he said that the Jews are a civilization and the Bible, the, the Torah is their constitution. And in fact, today in Israel, today in Israel, I have a book over there called Civil Religion in Israel by two more academics, Charles Liebman and Eliezer Dan Yechia, possibilities, which is, is the conclusion, is exactly what Gretz said. Judaism is a civilization, a nationality, and uh, excuse me, Jewishness, Jewish identity is a nationality, and Judaism was the constitution of that nationality. They invented an idea that Judaism was really made to hold the people together in exile, when they were expelled from their land. And really it's a temporary placeholder until they get a new country. This fake education, this heretical education, this anti-Jewish education went unopposed into the world by secular Jews because people like me, we were sitting there studying our Bible. And when we heard about it, they tried. So Rabbi Sonnenfeld sent a man, Jacob Dahan, to the British. Jacob Dahan was a professor. He, he uh, became orthodox uh, later in life. He was a very educated man, a professor, spoke many languages. Um, he, he sent them to the British to explain to them that all these things the Zionists are saying are not true. What happened was the Zionists assassinated him. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you know what's interesting is that as as you as as you know you're saying these things. Basically, what the Zionists did is they secularized Judaism. They secularized yes. Judaism. They secularized the Bible, saying it's our history book, it's our constitution. They yes. secularized Absolutely. Jews. They turned them in from a religious group to a nation, which may may or may not can believe or doesn't have to believe. And then they picked Palestine as their homeland. So now they oh. have a nation, a history, and a and a country. Exactly, and you see what they did was, they, this is the Zionist strategy, it's always like this. They, they come to the Jewish people and they say, support us because, well, you're persecuted, there's anti-Semitism in the world, we have an army, we're going to protect you. The, the, Leo Pinsker's uh, theory was that, uh, he was pre-Herzl, his theory was that because, because, um, the Jews will become another nation, they'll be respected, anti-Semitism will disappear. In fact, Herzl wrote, Theodore Herzl. This is Herzl's book, The Jewish State, right? On the last page, his final climax. And he was a journalist, he was a professional writer, Herzl. Here's what he said. As soon as Zionism gets off the ground, he said, even though creating a state of Israel may take a long time, quote, immediate relief will ensue. The intellects with which we produce so superabundantly in our middle classes will find an outlet in our organizations. 
And eventually he says, as soon as Zionism gets off the ground, anti-Semitism will disappear. Yeah, well, that That's didn't work out call. so well. But no, how, did, how, did, how is it that, so how is it that Orthodox Jews okay. have accepted this? Then, then what happened, there's, a, there's, a clear, there's a clear contradiction here. Yeah, so here's what happened. Their religion, so the, the Zionists, okay, so the Zionists said, you know what, you don't like us, we're bad, we're not Jewish, we're heretics, we're, 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 we're all, that's all true. But you know what, we'll protect you from anti-Semitism. We'll, we'll give you a, a place that's uh, a refuge if you're distressed. And after the Holocaust especially, uh, that was a very appealing offer to many Jews. Jews were traumatized after the Holocaust, as could be understood, right? And he said, we will give you a refuge. Now, at the same time, the Zionists could have had, could have had many other lands. There was the Uganda uh, offer. They could have had Alaska, various different lands that they could have possibly had. But Herzl said, no, 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 no. For marketing purposes, we have to tap into the Jews' love for the Holy Land. Of course, it kind of made sense. That's, of course. Right. So, see, they wanted to look Jewish. The, their balance that the Zionists always wanted to make was to be very anti-Jewish, but at the time to look very, very, very Jewish. Oh, they secularized it. They took out the religion. They, they, they took exactly, out the exactly. Now, that was, that was our and then there was rabbis, and then there was one rabbi. He was the one that, that caused all the, the Zionist problems. Then was Rabbi Abraham Cook, the first Ashkenaz chief rabbi of Israel. He was a big nationalist. His books, his and then, religion, by the way, the Zionists, and we talked about this last time, the Zionists admired him because he created this, this compromise, this handshake between the two communities. Yeah, and he did more than that. You know what he did? You know what he did? He offered exactly what Ben-Gurion wanted the Chazonish to do, which is this yes. between the two communities. And more than that, not just, he didn't merely build a bridge like Ben-Gurion wanted. He did worse, much worse. He took 19th century nationalist philosophy, Nationalist philosophy, Hegelian stuff, and various other, even from Spinoza he took, which is not 19th century, but you know, he took secular anti-Jewish philosophy and wrote it in Hebrew and mystical language as if that's part of Judaism. Right, without any, that last time, yeah. Without any sources, without any tying it to the Bible or to the Talmud, and people think that it's all mystical, deep things. He himself wrote, by the way, in a diary, he says, you know what? I, I'm not sure I know what I'm talking about. Maybe I'm hearing and he, voices. And he's, the, and he's the spiritual father of the, of, 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 of the spiritual father of the West Bank settlers, basically. Uh, yes, yes, because according to him, you see, what he did was he fused nationalism with religion such that now, now these religious settlers are now motivated and galvanized and actually actually made insane by nationalism in combination with religion. So if a person is a nationalist, you know, and he believes um, La Patria, France the fatherland, or Mother Russia, or something like that, that's one thing. But to put that on steroids, all you need to do is to say, no, this is religion. You're a religio warrior. There are scholars who say, I have that over here. 
you get this book. Israel, the first decade of independence. And you'll see in here that there are scholars that, that point out that the combination of military and religion was the Knights Templar, the, the yeah. Christian Knights Templar. And right. the Zionists got that idea from them. And they combine, they claim, the, the settlers believe that they have a pagan, pagan relationship with the land. They have a, now we, we, the land is holy to them. It's like, uh, it's like mother, it's like mother Russia. You know the story of Joseph Trumpador, right? Where, where blood went, there's this legend the Zionists tell, a, 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 his blood went into the ground and red poppies came out, right? Uh, flowers. You understand the, the psychology between that. It's, a, it's like a, a, um, marital relationship between the human, the Jew, and the lands that results in, in, in procreation. It's, it's a really wacko pagan relationship with the lands in relationship with their guns in relationship with... That, that's why they're... No, I, they're really, really crazy. They're crazy. So let me, uh, let me uh, take this in another direction. Um, there's a question here that uh, is very interesting. Knowing what the Jews have gone through throughout history and so forth, um, the Holocaust and anti-Semitism, do you think that do you think that Jews have a greater responsibility to denounce Israel and to denounce the crimes that Zionism has been committing? Zionists have been committing in Palestine for close to a hundred years now. But you know. Okay. Jews have a greater responsibility than, than others because of this reality that was created where people associate Zionism with Judaism, people associate Israel with, um, with Judaism. And, you know, like the followers of Rabbi Cook look like Orthodox Jews and they are these gun-wielding gun um, cowboys, Jewish cowboys, if you will, creating, you know, really spreading terror uh, in, in Palestine. Uh, all over the place right so so my my policy on that question is and actually hold on i want to expand this if you i'm sorry let me, just, let me just expand this because this has something to do also with something that we discussed um and 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 is really not understood outside the circles of people who who, who know a little bit about uh the ultra-orthodox community um people associate anti-zionist Jewish Orthodoxy with Natura Karta. So if I mention, oh yeah, here I had this conversation with Rabbi uh, Shapiro and he says, this is, oh yeah, well that's Natura Karta. You're not Natura Karta. And there's a distinction there. And uh, the, there's a distinction there, I think, from what I understood from you. So maybe you can clarify that distinction and maybe that I think will, will is related to this question because you and I talked about this before. Yeah, it is. It is. You're right about that. Um, one of the Zionist strategies to garner support or actually to deflect opposition is to present Zionism as a binary choice, as a concept in reciprocal determination for the support of Hamas and terrorism. According to what you will hear and see, 
being cranked out by Zionists. If you are an anti-Zionist, that means you are pro-Palestinian. If you are pro-Israel in the conflict, that means you are a Zionist, meaning that they have reduced Zionism, which is an ideology, um, which is a new Jewish identity, which is a new value system. They have reduced the entire thing into the conflict between them and the Palestinians. That's part of their strategy. So what they say is, well, if, if that's what Zionism is, and that's what they want everybody to think, they, they want you to not know. They want to conceal from you the fact that Zionism means a... You just disappeared. I know, I, I, okay, a phone call came in, I just declined it. Um, they want to conceal from you, this is important to know, the Zionists want to conceal from you what Zionism really is. Zionism, Zionism is. You can take the call if you have to, I mean. I don't have to. <laughs> Zionism is a new Jewish identity, a synthetic Judaism, a counterfeit Judaism, counterfeit Jewish values, stolen Jewish identity, a synthesized mythological history, a synthesized mythological national identity. They don't want you to know that. They want you to think that the entire discussion about a debate about Zionism or not means whether you're pro or against Hamas. Right. And therefore, anybody who's anti-Zionist must be pro-Hamas. Anybody who's anti-Zionist must be carrying Palestinian flags. That's the cause and effect. That's what the Zionists want you to think. There are two people that want you to think that, Zionists and anti-Semites. Both of them want you to think that all Jews are Zionists. The Zionists want you to think that Zionism is Judaism in order to defend Judaism. The anti-Semites want you to think that Zionism is Judaism in order to attack Judaism. But they both want the same thing. So. That's why David Duke, who a man who I never met in my life, I have no interest in meeting him, got a hold of one of my anti-Zionist videos, and he wrote a whole article on his website about how, don't believe Rabbi Shapiro, he really is a Zionist. He really, the Orthodox Jews really are Zionists. The anti-Semites want people to think Jews are Zionists, just like the Zionists do. And my position on this is, is as follows. If you, if let's say the Japanese in their, or you know, the Indians, let's say between India and Kashmir, now there's a big fight going on and uh, terrible things are happening to the people in Kashmir, terrible things. Let's say the people in India would say, you know what, we're really the Jews. The guys in New York that wear the yarmulkes, they're not really the Jews. We're, we're the real Jews. We, we, and they would synthesize some type of identity. That's exactly what the Zionists did. They're no more representative of the Jews than the Indians are. Now, would anybody ask me, well, since you're Jewish, you have an obligation to protest on behalf of Kashmir. No, I don't. What I do would, would be productive is if I were to tell everybody the Indians have nothing to do with the Jews, I have nothing to do with their conflict, I, 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 could, I am on the side of, the, of Kashmir. I tell you, between I am. But... I can't be involved in every human rights issue, 
And as a Jew, that's your question, as a Jew, no, I have no obligation to get involved between India and Kashmir because the stupid Indians claim that they are the Jews. So too, Israel claims that they represent the Jews. They, do, they represent the Jews no more than the Indians or the Bulgarians or the Japanese or anybody else. They're crazy. What we need to do, and honestly, this is, I believe, this is the best thing for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in terms of peace. And I tell this to everybody all the time. The best thing would be, first, to eliminate out of the conflict this nonsensical religious Jewish element. This is a, this is a political conflict that has nothing to do with God giving these Zionists the land. It has nothing to do with historical rights. It has nothing to do with any of these things that, that, that wicked people like Naftali Bennett uh, bring into the mix. Naftali Bennett gets on national TV, on Mehdi Hassan's TV show, and says, you know, whatever you say against Israel makes no difference. Change the Bible. The Bible says that belongs to the, the land belongs to the Jews. The Bible doesn't say that, and, and they're not the Jews anyway to claim the land. Uh, they're, they're, they would have been kicked out of the land in the days of King David, they would, Benjamin Netanyahu would have been put to death for his violating Jewish law every I week, okay? I don't, know. I, don't know because, we, I don't know if we should put that on the, uh, out there. No, public. I'm not saying to kill him, but I'm saying by religious law, you know okay, all yeah. over the Torah, there is death penalties for violating religious law. And in the days of King David, when they I I enacted those penalties, he would not be elected prime minister yeah, but let me, let, me, let me push you on this a little bit harder. I, I, I see what you're saying. I hear what you're saying completely, and uh, it does make sense. However, however, there is a reality where even in Palestine, even in Jerusalem, um, maybe not in the heart of Masharim, where you still see Palestinian flags and you've got, you know, kind of a Natura Karta presence, but um, you see ultra-Orthodox cities being built by Israel, by the Zionists in the West Bank, and they're flocking. When uh, you go to, if you're in Hebron, God forbid, the settlers there are, are really the devil. Um, many of them look like you, or they look like, you know, they look like all regular Orthodox Jews. They dress, and they pray, and they so forth. And there is a sense, and I think it's a, it, it's a truth, it's, it, it, represent, it reflects a reality, where more and more of not just Jews that look like me, secular people, but Orthodox Jews, ultra-Orthodox Jews, um, are there accepting Zionism, and not only accepting Zionism, but pushing Zionism like Naftali Bennett, like all these, all these uh, you know, uh, hardened racists who are out there, but the reality is that both there and even around the world, we see people, we see Jewish people, more and more of them, that are, are, are supporting Zionism and in, in the worst way. So the, I'll ask the question again, is there no, or, or somehow a moral, maybe not an obligation, but a need, the obligation is a, is, is a big, you know, is, is a strong word, for Jewish people to stand up, because I believe there is, uh, I'll be honest, I think Jewish people do have an obligation. I think people like myself uh, certainly have an obligation uh, to stand up 
um, and, 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 and speak up against this. But don't Jewish people as a, as a whole, and particularly, you know, the Torah Jews, have an obligation to stand up and, and say, well, speak up for this, speak on this issue. You, you referred to two things, and I'll answer both, uh, obligation and need. Um, if you were to go to a black person in the street and tell him that another black person committed a crime, and because you're black, you have an obligation to speak up against that person, I would say that's racist. The idea that person B is responsible for the actions of person A, or has a greater responsibility to speak up against person A because they share a skin color or a religion or something, that's wrong. That is said, by the way, all the time. That is, that I, is demanded I, by I, Arabs, demanded by Palestinians, demanded by Blacks. And I say that, that's that wrong. And I say that's wrong. Yeah. The question is offensive. And it's the same thing. The fact that there are Jews doing things that are against my religion, no. I am, I am not responsible because or what somebody else does just because, as you put it, they look like me, or, or they ha call themselves orthodox? The answer is no. In fact, by doing so, I think it's more counterproductive because you don't see, who do you see, we'll talk about Indian Kashmir again, who do you see uh, fighting for, for Kashmir? You see the people who, aren't, who, who are, have a connection to Kashmir, right? Uh, who, who, yeah. Uh, I'll give you two, my two, two real-life examples. In Turkey, after the flotilla incident, anti-Semitism exploded in Turkey. And the Turkish community was saying the Jews in Turkey are responsible con to condemn Israel's actions. Now, that's wrong. And there are Turkish Jews, secular Jews, who wrote an article, I quote it in my book, that said, we are Turkish citizens to associate us with Israel in a way that obligates us to speak up about Israel more or less than any other Turkish citizens is actually attributing us to us a loyalty or a connection to a country that we have nothing to do with. And that's Absolutely. wrong. That's true. However, let me, let me, let me, let me put this in a, a different way. It's not that Jewish people have a responsibility because they are connected. It's because perhaps that your voice has greater value and your voice as a moral authority um, helps to clarify the injustice. In other words, if, if, you, if you step up and condemn Zionism for the crimes they commit in Palestine, then it makes it more difficult for the Zionists to justify what they're doing because they say that what they're doing is in order to protect you and me. Well, they're, if you guys stand up and, and reject them, it's a, it's, 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 it's a much stronger argument, not because we're obliged to, because we're somehow connected in well, two they're things, two their Jews, but because it, it, it gives, a, the, the, there's a moral authority that comes with being identified with that thing and saying, no, 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 I'm not part of that. There is no justification for what they're doing. If, even if you're right that there's a moral authority with being connected with that thing, being connected with that thing in the long term just strengthens that thing. There are plenty of leftists in Israel, plenty, 
who are against what Israel's doing. Maybe even the majority of Israel is against annexation and stuff like that, right? Well, that's, that's, that's not what's reflected in the Israeli elections. Okay, well, the, well, but yeah. Okay, I'm not sure what's reflected in the Israeli elections, but which elections are you talking about? The last four, five, or six? I, I don't know, but let, let's assume that's true. Well, exactly. The last four, five, six right. came out with the exact same results. Let's, right. So, so let's assume that's true. <laughs> uh, and Netanyahu lost the uh, popular vote, right? Yeah. Okay, so, but regardless. And he didn't die. There, there, are, minister. there are people like Israel, ideologies like Israel, accept opposition. They, it's in their benefit for Jews to get up and say, I'm a Jew, I'm involved in Israeli politics, and I am against what Israel's doing. Israel, Zionism is strengthened like that because the biggest problem that exists in the Middle East conflict, and I mean biggest cause of, of the biggest obstacle to peace from the Israeli side, and the biggest excuse that people like Naftali Bennett have to continue their behavior is that people like Yaakov Shapiro in the United States of America, who's American citizen, whose family's from Poland, and I, he never lived in Israel, is our people. And I'll prove to you he's our people because he's expressing his opinion, be it for what our, our policy or against our policy. Nevertheless, he accepts us as his state. Yes, let me, let, let, me, let me push it a little further. Let me push you on this again a little further. Um, you know, Americans um, who opposed the Vietnam War or the American invasion and, and, cons and, and, and consequent uh, uh, massacres in, in, in Iraq and, and, and intervention in Afghanistan and so on, uh, they did not vote for these presidents they did not ex ex accept their policies, their foreign policy that was put together by criminals. We have to admit, I think, that the fact that Americans stood up against the Iraq war, well, they had nothing to do with the soldiers. It's not even less than in Vietnam. Vietnam, there was a draft. In Iraq, there was no draft even. So you can say, these are mercenaries. They have nothing to do with me as an American. However, the fact that Americans stand up and oppose American intervention in the Middle East and the, 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 the hundreds of the countless death, deaths that are, are as a result of that, they carry a, a greater weight than anybody else who, who stands up. And it's important um, even for Americans themselves to know and people on the outside to know not all Americans view this and identify with this. Not all Jewish people identify with Zionism, not all Jewish people. In fact, Jewish people stand in opposition not only to Zionism, but certainly to the crimes that that uh, Zionists and you know when 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 uh, you know when I show up to a conference about you know justice in Palestine, I look just like any other guy. You know when when an Orthodox rabbi, ultra Orthodox rabbi shows up, people go, "Oh, look, there are Jewish people here standing with us," and that carries a great deal of of of, of weight. In, in the short term, it does. But your analogy, what you said, is true that if more Americans stood up against American policy, that's a strong voice. But if Japanese people stood up against American policy, it's a different story altogether. Jews are to Israel what Japanese are to Americans. Not exactly. That's the point. But not and exactly. See, 
Yes, exactly. That's my position. I have nothing to do with Israel. That's what I'm telling people. That's my message. Look, have another book, Benjamin Netanyahu, okay? What's it called? A Place Among the Nations. He explains why, if you're against Israel, you're an anti-Semite. Listen. Well, now you're just making my point. That's exactly what I'm saying. No, no, but listen to what his logic, okay? I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm just anti-Zionist is the equivalent of saying I'm not anti-American. I just think the United States should not exist. Zionism means that Israel is to the, America is to the Americans what Israel is to the Jews. Reality, America is to the Americans what Israel is to the Israelis. So if Americans should speak up against the Iraqi war, let the Israelis speak up against Israeli actions. Jews have nothing to do with Israel. And it is the best thing, in my opinion, for the peace process if that message would go out. Because people need to understand the fight between Israel and the Palestinians is not between Jews and Muslims, not between the Jewish state and the Palestinians, not between the Jewish people and the Palestinian people. It is between Israel and the Palestinians. Once the, the problem is clarified, then they could work on a solution. The reason why, in my view, a solution is so difficult to find is because people are, don't even know who the fight is between. The Jews have a right. The Jews have historical right. It's the Jewish land. God gave the Jews. What does Israel have to do with the Jews? Nothing. First, let's get that on the table. Then they can start working on a solution. As long as Israel is associated with the Jews, first of all, it, it literally causes anti-Semitism because Jews are blamed for what Israel does. The University of Tel Aviv, I mentioned this last time, the University of Tel Aviv Cantor Center established this, that Jews all over the world are blamed for what Israel does. So I have no interest in putting Jews anywhere in danger, nor do I have an interest in strengthening Zionism Zionism means that Israel is not the country of the Israelis, it's the country of the Jews. Really, Israel is the country of its citizens. That's what should be, correct? You are fighting for Israel to be the country of its citizens, right? Not the country of the Jews, right? Now, there are two sides to that coin. One, Israel is the country of its citizens, even the Palestinians. Two, Israel is the country of the Israelis, not all Jews. It's the same thing. Once you say Israel is the country of the Jews, or all Jews are connected to Israel, now you are accepting or cooperating with the ethnocentric ideology of Zionism, and you just made it worse for the peace process. That's my position. Do you have any idea? We've we've asked this before, and I don't I don't think there is there is an estimate or an idea, but um, or do you think there's any point in trying to gauge? What, how many Jewish people accept this your 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 point or this this point of view that that you're that you're expressing here? And also, I'll combine this with another question um, on this issue of of uh, rejecting Zionism as Jewish people. Is there any value in collaborating between, say, you and um, and uh, and and 
you know, other secular Jewish people who, um, who, who say similar things. Uh, for, somebody mentioned, I don't know if you know Rabbi uh, Brant Rosen, for example. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know him. Um, but do you know his work? Do you know what he, no. what he okay. He's a, he, he kind of speaks like I do, except he's a, he's a, um, uh, he's a rabbi, uh, uh, reconstructionist, I believe. But anyway, the point is, is there any, is there any value? Is there any value in collaborating together on this issue of Zionism? And, uh, is there any way to gauge how many Jewish people, or doesn't, is it even important how many Jewish people um, except this point of view? The amount of people that accept this point of view differs between two categories. Category one, the amount of people, Jews that never heard this point of view before and are merely absorbing what they read in the New York Times or what President Trump tells them, which is total Zionism, in his last um, one of his executive orders, he said he recommends the, that we accept the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which includes basically anti-Zionism. Um, those Jews versus Jews that sit down and listen or read to this point of view. The second category, Jews who are educated, that, are, that have seen this and have thought about it, increasing number of them, majority of them, accept it. It's like asking, you know, look, we're in the middle of this uh, coronavirus thing. How many Americans accept, I don't know, what, what the medical establishment is saying? Whatever they're saying, whatever your opinion is, I'm leaving that generic, okay? The answer is, well, you have to hear it first. You have to hear it, you have to be educated. An American that never heard doesn't count in the vote, right? I mean, he, he can vote, but it, same thing here. The, when I, I'd say, so when I wrote my book, I, I thought I would sell a couple hundred copies maximum, mostly to my family. It's in its fourth printing now. I had no idea, no idea that it would become amongst Orthodox Jews a bestseller. In the, I, I spoke, you know, in February for the Committee for the, committee for the Republic, and, and Ambassador Chaz Freeman announced that in the back of the room, they're selling the book. You know, they're selling the book. They're boxes of books to sell. People actually bought. It, it's, I, I, you would be surprised, you know, uh, sometimes it's hard to have faith in humanity. People are bombing each other. People are dying. There's wars. And, and, and you know, the, there's a whole continent dying of sickness out there in Africa. And, and uh, there are all sorts of bad things happening, you know? But really, if you sit down with somebody and you reason with them, there are many, many honest people that will see the light if you just explain it to them. And the reason, as I wrote in the introduction to my book, why this book is so big, is because there is such a pile, a century where Zionism is concerned, a century of propaganda that started with Theodore Herzl, even before Herzl, Moses Hess, Leo Pinsker, uh, it started 150 years ago, propaganda on top of propaganda to, to remove those layers of, of mythology and stupidity and falsehood. It can be done. People can be reasoned with, but we have to reach those people. You see, um, as you know, 
they don't put really Orthodox Jews on TV. They don't put, um, you know, as you know, there are plenty even of anti-Zionist secular Jews, plenty of them. You're not one of them. There are others that are not either. But there are those that just don't like Orthodox Jews, right? Yeah. They just, they don't like Orthodox Jews. Yeah. You know, I have over here, yeah, this book, it's a comic book. Oh my God. Yeah, I know. It's all about, it's actually an anti-Zionist book, and uh, there's really stuff in there I didn't know that a rabbi shouldn't read because of religious sensitivities to um, modesty and chastity. But the author of that book, where Zionism is concerned, he's an anti-Zionist, but it's clear he also doesn't like Orthodox Judaism. There are plenty of people that consider people like me. Hold the book up again. Can you hold it up again so people can see what book this is? Because it, it only showed a little bit of it. Or you oh. rather not, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I, you know. Just put it right. Uh, move it. Move, and move it back just a little bit. Because it's not fitting in the It's the guy, uh, yeah. Ellie Valley, an introduction by Peter Beinert. Oh, I see. Okay. So, so I'll give you an example, okay? There was a podcast approximately last year, maybe March, if I remember right, give or take. Peter Beiner and Deborah Lipstadt, okay? Deborah Lipstadt is a self-proclaimed, self-anointed, self-appointed expert in anti-Semitism. She knows as much about anti-Semitism as I do about um, samurai warriors, okay? Um, probably less, but she wrote a book about it. And Peter Beinert asks her, are Orthodox Jews who are anti-Zionist, such as Satmach Sidim, are they also anti-Semites? She said, the jury is out on that. Oh, is it really? <laughs> yes. Yes. And, um, I didn't know there was a jury. I, I, ex exactly. And this is the anti-Zion, these are the Zionist Jews, see, we're stuck in the middle. Look, there are people, I have recently been um, appointed uh, to the board of directors of the International Council of Middle East Studies, a Washington DC based think tank Good. that has a whole bunch of high powered academics and lawyers and, and uh, you could you could look them up icmes.net they're they're down there in washington dc yeah so there are people who, who will accept us but there are still people that have prejudice against orthodox jews we're primitive i'm primitive right you can tell i'm a primitive guy we don't have critical thinking skills it's a it's a prejudice you know i'd like to bring them into a room with me and see who has no critical thinking skills that said we have a hard time getting the word out, yeah. you know? And when we do, we, we, we're, we're shut down. We don't own radio stations, magazines, newspapers. Somebody like Barry Weiss, the uh, um, opinion editor in the New York Times. Young woman, she wrote a book. Here's her book, okay? How to Fight Anti-Semitism. It's a terrible book, absolutely terrible. I read the whole thing. Terrible book. She has no idea what she's talking about. Absolutely none. Absolutely none. She claims that anti-Zionists on the left are like the um, 
Greeks during the holiday of Hanukkah that tried to try to take away our religion. Taking away Zionism is like taking away Judaism that makes it anti-Semitism. There are so many, uh, so many logical fallacies in, in, in that book, but she's the opinion editor of the New York Times. What do we have to compete? Yeah. We, well, you know, we're, 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 I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, give us five more minutes and then, and then close it. But I think this is a good place to kind of talk about what you just said. Number one, you had, you gave this kind of optimistic outlook about the, you know, people buying your book and, and humanity and the need to um, put your point of view out there, which of course you're doing, you do with your book, you do with your lectures. I mean, you speak in front of a lot of people. Um, <clears throat> and that's, I think, and I think there's a hunger for that too, because obviously after our first conversation, after we put out our first conversation, people are th were thirsty to hear more. And they are thirsty to hear more from <clears throat> a Jewish rabbi who looks like you, and has your background and your education um, because you do represent something. And so I think this is a really, I'm, I'm really glad we're able to, um, you know, to do this. It's been like an hour and a half, so we should probably, we should probably wrap it up here on this, on the, on the one hand, on this positive note, your faith in humanity being restored and also on uh, the need to, um, for people to see the book. I mean, we have a, we have a mutual friend who read your book twice. And it's a 1500 page book. So, I mean, obviously there's a, there's, there's a lot there uh, that the book offers. Um, and perhaps we, uh, we will do this again. I mean, this is, uh, this, this is an ongoing conversation. So I really appreciate your time. And thanks again for, you know, for your thoughts and your opinions and your time. Thanks again for having me, Nico. It's a pleasure. <laughs> All right, that is going to do it for today. I want to thank our audience for keeping up with the Miko Pellet podcast. If you have any friends who you think would be interested in this podcast, uh, we'd encourage you to go ahead and share that with them. Also going to shout out again, please rate and review the Miko Pellet podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, whatever podcast app you use if you haven't already. And don't forget the Miko Pellet podcast is also available on Spotify. So you can go ahead and give Miko Pellet a follow there. If you have any questions for Miko, shoot those over to me at booking at mikopella.com and we can try and get those answered on forthcoming episodes. And thank you again for your time and interest. All right, till next time.